So that was a uh, um, huge failure on my part because these guys let me uh, call you without adult supervision. So <laughs> we'll see how that goes. Ivor, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks a lot, Matt. Great to be here. I really appreciate you joining me, and I've been uh, consuming your your charts and graphs and data analysis, I think, since April. Um, and and we have some uh, at least some some common opinions. I think you probably come at it more from a, a, a data science dork perspective, and I come at it from an economist. But I really wanted to get you on the show, and I really appreciate you joining. No, and it's great to uh, talk to an economist as well. That's a big concern of mine, but I don't go into that too deeply. Super. Um, so let's start by maybe you could just explain to people your background. Um, and since every time we talk about COVID, everybody wants to know what your credentials are to talk about this. Um, and a little bit about the fat emperor and, and what that's all about. So people have context for, for why you've been out so outspoken about, about lockdowns. Right. Well, uh, I was a biochemical engineer originally, uh, and I went into the corporate world, and I rapidly began to develop a flair for complex problem solving, so multi-factor complex problems. And I was very successful in that, and I became a, a senior engineer, and then a master technologist, a manager of technical teams. But my, my flair was always to lead worldwide big teams in huge complex problems with many, many factors, integrating all the data and getting a rapid time to resolution. So that's where I shone. And uh, in 2012, I got some random blood tests routine. And I had a few ones that were really way out of whack. I immediately kind of looked, wow. And I went to three doctors in succession, including a professor of medicine. I couldn't get the answers on two key questions in any problem if you're brought in to uh, lead a team. What's the implications? And uh, what are the root cause fixes? So I went and researched it myself. I found out cholesterol was not what they told us. I found out fat in real foods was not a problem. Carbohydrate was. And I began to lecture and YouTube release, and it got very big. And an entrepreneur in Ireland who was profoundly motivated to save everyone from heart disease, very wealthy guy, he began to fund me to travel around the world and, and get this message out. So that was all great until 2020. And then the corona thing happened. And I'd looked at the Chinese data and I'd seen the Diamond Princess. So I did a rapid assessment. I said, this is going to be really tough on the old and the immunocompromised. And it's going to be like a really bad flu. But it will be seasonal because I checked coronaviruses are sharply seasonal. So we're going to go through a wave in Europe, most likely. And it was beginning in Italy. Um, and then it will pass and everything will go back to normal. You know, to be sad passings, but that's life. It's a virus. Blame the virus. And that didn't happen. So by April, I was realizing the world was in love with lockdowns now. Uh, the WHO 2019 pandemic guidelines, I looked up, no quarantine, no lockdowns for pandemic influenza or similar. And uh, they threw the rule book out and it appears they decided to copy China. And I just couldn't understand this. So I understood the initial lockdown in Europe because of the panic and fear precautionary principle. But in early April, when the curve turned, as it inevitably was going to do anyway, without lockdown, 
uh, the curve turned and I thought now the hospitals are going to empty out. You know, the debts, sad debts will, will finish and all of this stuff will go back to normal. And anyway, I think the viewers know the, the rest. Yeah, and I was um, I was equally taken by surprise by this whole um, new paradigm of, of forcing everyone to stay in their homes. And it almost feels a little bit medieval to me that this idea that you could hide from a virus. And, and I didn't understand anything about epidemiology. I didn't understand all that much about uh, uh, virus prevention history. Um, but I did know a little bit about economics. And I, I thought immediately about the economic trade-offs and how that would impact poverty, how that would impact health, how that would impact the ability, particularly of, of poor people at the margin globally to feed their families. And, and I wrote that up in March. And, and unfortunately, um, I can now put all sorts of concrete data behind that. The World Health Organization actually agrees with me on this point, but they no one seems willing to sort of acknowledge that it was lockdowns. It was the response to the virus, more so than the disruption of the virus itself that, that caused all these, these tremendous, tremendous um, uh, humanitarian disasters that, that I think we're just starting to see the beginning of that because the economic consequences of this will, will go on for years. It's, it's gonna be hard to recover from that. But maybe um, I wanna start with the data and normally you you have your charts, but I'd love for you to 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 sort of walk through your your general thesis about about the behavior of a typical uh, COVID virus and and the seasonality of it, and and there's there's a sort of bell curve behavior that that seems to tra track every time. Uh, walk us through some of that. Right. Well, so if we look at Europe or Northeast North America. Uh, it's the simplest kind of uh, northern temperate region. So we saw it rise in March uh, quite explosively. So a real epidemic, you get a very rapid rise in, in mortality and ICUs filling up. And then you get the curl over and you get a long, steady decline. Right. It's a Gompertz mathematical function. And I interviewed Professor Michael Levitt, the Nobel Prize winner, a few times, including in person. I traveled to London to get him for our new movie on this. And uh, yeah, he worked it all out in February that the Chinese had followed this curve, that the lockdown actually was not really the driver of the curl over. And he also looked at the Diamond Princess and he put it all together and the mathematics of it. And he wrote to Imperial College London, the scaremongers who we now know, like you said, the data is out now. We know they were out by a factor of 12, a factor of 12 in their predicted deaths and impact. Uh, so he notified them and they ignored him. Uh, but basically the curl over is because the passing of the susceptible, so susceptible people pass away, et cetera, or people recover and you get community immunity building and the virus finds or stumbles over uh, finding a lack of people to continue the process. So you've got passing of the susceptible community immunity or herd immunity. It's a dirty word now for some reason develops. And you've also got the passing of the season and the virus becomes less active for a few complicated reasons, including human immune system triggering and uh, humidity and other factors. So those together gives you the classic curve. But New York, with the, one of the biggest hits in the world, it was strongly driven by, by herd immunity. 
I mean, that's clear. You can watch New York ever since, and it's flatline, um, and Europe mostly. But what we're seeing in Europe now to the seasonality, some countries that never really caught the first wave, they had a small hump. Uh, they're getting quite a big one now in the winter. And the countries generally that got the big hump because they developed community immunity, et cetera, and the susceptible past, they're getting a rise in the winter. That's endemic normal type rise in the following winter. So, but the best thing for seasonality, if I just dwell on that, if people can visualize the hump in Northern Europe, March, April, up and down and gone by May. Well, in Brazil, the hump rolls up in March, April, May, June, July in a longer, slower mortality uh, curve. But Brazil had SARS-CoV-2, this virus, identified in the human sewage in November 2019, same as Europe. So that's a striking example that the virus triggers seasonally. Right. Even though it was in community transmission, a high transmissibility virus, everyone agreed on that, or of three, it's in Europe and it's in Brazil in November in the poo, right, coming through the humans. OK, it's there. Uh, but Europe goes up like New York and down again. And Brazil is a long, slow hump that they're only tailing off now. And these seasonal patterns match the prior literature and research for influenza type viruses. They match very nicely what's been observed for decades. So, so your uh, the the data suggests that that two things we can expect in let's let's call it the second wave. That's what the media is calling it. Um, the second wave could well particularly impact um, countries and communities that that weren't hit that hard the first time. Is that true? Yeah, that would generally be true, because if you're not hit that hard and you don't develop uh, a degree of immunity, it's probably important to note that the modelers assumed 100% of people were susceptible, immuno-naive. We had no protection. That's been proven to be completely false. So in general, four out of five people exposed to a symptomatic person indoors in the studies never exhibit any problem. So there's around an 80% de facto immunity. You may catch it, but it makes no difference, right? Yeah. So that's the first thing. But indeed, countries where the susceptible do not really get exposed and the season does trigger, well, guess what? They'll be six months older and more frail when the next winter season comes. And yes, sadly, you're going to see a pretty big hump. So we're seeing that in Czech Republic and others at the moment. Uh, but again, in terms of lockdown, and this is really a, a stunning thing, you're absolutely right, Matt, that the lockdown causes vastly more human suffering and death than it saves lives from COVID. That's without question now. And you can go to uh, collateralglobal.org, have around 80 published papers on what lockdown does to people, physical, mental, social health, and then there's the economic determinants of health, another massive thing. So we know that lockdown is a disaster in cost benefit, but get this, there's a British medical journal published paper that did an analysis, and it's a little complex, but because this is an old person's disease overwhelmingly in terms of impact and death, if you lock down their analysis shows that when you include the next season, overall, you will tend to drive more COVID deaths by doing lockdowns. Never mind all the rest. You'll actually cause more COVID deaths. 
if you successfully suppress, because you will not get as much community immunity in the relatively safe guys who have high mobility. And as a result, granny and grandpa are at much greater risk next winter. So all these people saying, what about grandma and you want to kill granny? They don't realize the enormous irony. They're the ones with blood on their hands, hugely. Yeah, and and even the even the Imperial College model, as I recall, if you ran it out through a two-year cycle, the uh, the early efforts that everybody endorsed to flatten the curve suggested that over the long run more people would die. So this this is not controversial even amongst lockdowners, although I don't think they they typically acknowledge that that suppressing the virus actually extends the the devastation of the virus. Yeah, they won't acknowledge, and that that is the problem. So anything that goes against the lockdowns from China are good narrative. It just doesn't get covered. So the BMJ published that paper, and there's another preprint out from a different team from Europe, even more detailed analysis, uh, exact same outcome. Yeah. But yeah. the modeling from Imperial College, to be honest, I, I wouldn't even refer to it because it's literally junk science. They assumed 100% were susceptible, which was junk science. Even with a new virus, we know our T-cell immune system and mucosal as memory. And there's loads of coronaviruses in the past. And they share a lot of the proteins, which your immune system recognizes. And they've validated this. So it's junk science on that front. The other reason it's junk science is they took their bases, not from the Diamond Princess, which is good data, Right. They actually took their base infection fatality rate and assumption from six infected people out of 690 on six flights out of Wuhan in China in February. And it sounds like a joke. You'd say, no, 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 no. That's impossible. It's in their paper. <laughs> they had the gall to print it because it's the truth. So it's just an absurdity. That paper they produced that was never peer-reviewed went straight to the government and shut down the UK, and then it triggered IHME in America to shut down America. The chaos it caused, the suffering, the death that's coming, and and it's here now. That was basically based on junk science that was never even peer-reviewed. There's no way that could have got through peer review. Yeah. It's toilet paper, I call that. You know, scientific papers... I have certain ones I call toilet papers. It's um, the you know the other half of that story, and I've had uh, economists and econometricians sort of take apart that model. The the wildly naive assumptions about human behavior, and you just you just plug things in, which are essentially made up points, and and you keep manipulating it to get the the process you want. And I think the one thing that maybe we can assume I don't I don't know how you feel about this, but um, they wanted a big number because they wanted to get people's attention, and and I've I've read about this. the The whole lockdown model is is perhaps um, a a radical interpretation of the precautionary principle, suggesting that you know what something really bad might happen, so we need to preemptively lock everything down in hopes that it doesn't happen. Which again, to me, sounds kind of medieval, but um, that's sort of the logic I think that some of them argue. Yeah, and Professor Michael Levitt uh, from Stanford, I mean, incredible guy, incredible mind. And he actually got his Nobel Prize in 2013 for complex chemical and biochemical 
modeling of of progression of reactions. I mean, that guy, he was in China when this blew. He was in the perfect place in every way. But he has used repeatedly the term medieval, and I'd agree totally. I think science has been replaced this year suddenly with scientism, with uh, we're listening to the science. But if you try and even discuss the logic and the actual science, it's censored and shut down. So it's obviously not science, it's religion. Uh, because science is always debated, different points are all aired, and then through that process of argument and debate, the best hypothesis surface, naturally. That's science. In this case, we had YouTube censoring videos of epidemiologists, virologists, top people, and the people they censored in March. I remember I got the videos on other channels, and I thought, oh my God, these guys are completely bang on. And sure enough, we know now that the people who were censored were bang on the money. But the narrative now has to be protected because the political fallout from ever even going near acknowledging that it was a mistake, which it was without question, the fallout is too big. It's too big to fail. I don't know what you think, Matt, but you literally can't have governments around the world admitting to their people they made a mistake on this. It's too big. Millions of people have lost their jobs, suicides, lost partners. The, the devastation is massive. The cancer diagnoses delayed. The, the people who will die from cancer, huge number. Cardiac deaths. In the UK, for the last couple of months, there is an increased mortality versus previous years. But you know what? It's all in the 40 to 60-year-olds. It ain't COVID. It's all deaths in the home. There's below uh, standard deaths in hospital and care homes. The people who are dying in the home are not dying of COVID. Those guys get to hospital. They're dying of cardiac arrests and other problems from the lockdown. And the numbers are beginning to grow. It's, you know, that let, let's go there because um, the number one killer in the world is not COVID. It's not even close. It's, it's cardiovascular disease. The number two killer is cancer. It's not even close. Cancer kills, what, uh, what is it, 10 million people a year, something like that. Um, and, and again, as an economist and not a, not a healthcare guy, I see the ob obvious implications of, of I'll, I'll speak of our government, I think the same thing has probably happened uh, with your government, where politicians stepped in. You mentioned the word scientism earlier, the, the, the arrogance of politicians thinking that they could manage our entire hospital system by deciding that we're going to be completely prepared for this uh, onslaught of COVID patients, forgetting that there are much bigger health challenges that people face. And there was there was no balance there. There was no understanding of, of trade-offs. Um, and, and you've really focused on cardiovascular disease in, in your broader project. Um, you, you mentioned that, but, but what's, I mean, what's happening? Yeah, it's it's surreal. But then again, it's been surreal for me since my first interviews and research back in late March. And it stayed surreal every day. So in the last few months, it's just gone from twilight zone into like an alternate universe. Because in the middle of the summer in Northern Europe, when clearly exactly as I and all my expert professors around the world said, in June, the death rate was down to next to nothing even though they had opened up some of the lockdowns. I mean, you don't have to be an Einstein. You open up the lockdowns when the virus is clearly in your society and its R curve keeps going straight down to the floor. 
It was the lockdowns did nothing. But then a most shocking thing happened. Suddenly everyone was talking about masks and mandatory masks at the nadir of the summer when there was nothing going on and would not be going on for at least two or three more months, at least until the winter. That was basic science. But the WHO and everyone started making noises. Let's get people in masks. And next minute, the laws started getting passed all over, like domino effect. And I'm there just thinking, okay, now I am in a different universe because there is no science in this universe I'm now in. Yeah. It's that bad. It's and they did it. Um, they, they did it, like, incredibly. So for the next couple of months, we had people going around in masks everywhere in the middle of the summer, not realizing how ridiculous that was, how absurd. And then when the winter came, it was like the masks kind of kept the people believing something was going on in the summer. It's almost like they were a psychological tool because there were no deaths or ICU and people probably would have realized, oh, it's like a seasonal flu and the worst is behind us. Sure, that's great. I suspect certain people didn't want that to be the case. You know, I won't get into conspiracies, but bringing in masks in the middle of the summer. I mean, really, something is seriously wrong in the world. There was a there was a noticeable shift. Um, I'm old enough to remember when the World Health Organization was advising against wearing masks. And our um, celebrated science advisor in our government, uh, Dr. Fauci, um, you can still find the video where he's telling us that, that wearing masks is a really bad idea. And I, I had been watching this as I would go to the grocery store and, and watching all of these, these poor workers that have to wear these masks and they're constantly moving them around their face. And you're naturally touching your nose and your eyes all the time. So if, in fact, um, that is a transmitter of a virus, which, uh, as I understand it, it is, Fauci's original advice was the right advice. He's like, don't wear a mask. People mess with them, and it's just going to make things worse. But, but somewhere along the way, it, it, there was a political mandate or, or even sort of a religious um, shift where it, it became a form of virtue signaling. If you don't wear a mask, you, you literally are killing people. And it's crazy. Yeah. And that latter uh, part of virtue signaling and the people just becoming, I use the word psychotic, and in a sense, I, I no, I continue to use that. It is a psychosis of sorts, but it's an ideology, a religion, and virtue signaling. But that kind of came after. So I'm a root cause guy. So that's definitely part of the mechanism of self-reinforcement uh, and continuing the madness. No doubt about it. But someone sat down in rooms and decided we're going to get mandatory masks in. And those people weren't all virtue signaling. Those people were cold, calculating people. Whoever they were, we don't know. But it sprang up and it became mandatory prison sentences, fines, all the rest. And like it was so obviously wrong. It was the most anti-scientific moment possibly in my lifetime maybe in anyone's lifetime, unless you go back to the Salem witch trials or yeah. something like that. And the thing was so insane. I was saying to people at the time, but not only is it unscientific profoundly uh, in the middle of a summer when we know what's seasonal and when nothing's happening, but to do something like that, there is no exit strategy. Because if you bring in mass in the middle of the summer in northern temperate region when that virus has passed and it's not going to come back till the winter, and your hospitals are empty 
and there's nothing happening. How would you ever take them out? You can't take them out next month because you brought them in in the middle of the summer when nothing was happening. So why take them out in a month later when nothing's happening? You can't take them out in the winter because we know coronaviruses in the winter rise in prevalence and there'll be more going on. So why would you take out the masks? There is no exit strategy, which makes it profoundly psychotic to do something. Yeah. And people say, oh, well, it's not that hard to wear a mask. Yeah, it's not. It's not that hard for me to walk barefoot. But should my government bring in a law to say you need to walk barefoot because we think there's bugs on shoes and they might infect someone else? No, it's not about how hard it is to wear. It's about the principle. The unscientific nature of what they did breaches every principle of human rights to tell your whole society to do something like that based on absurdity. It's, I mean, I, I, I think that it is intentionally or not good training for other compliance. And you mentioned the celebration of the, the Chinese model, which in the United States, that is absolutely mind boggling to me that we, that we would celebrate an authoritarian regime that is, that is actively hurting their Muslim minorities into camps, is actively um, disappearing uh, free speech and democracy advocates in Hong Kong and, and how that is celebrated. I pulled up an article and unfortunately, when you Google um, Chinese success on coronavirus, you get like an endless flow of articles. And um, here's one from NBC News. As COVID-19 runs riot across the world, China controls the pandemic. And they quote a former CDC official saying they have done an amazing job of controlling the virus. And then buried in the article, it points out data that is surely to any reporter, even if you're a high school reporter, absurd because China is claiming that total, they have 86,000 confirmed cases and only 4,634 deaths in a country of 1.4 billion people. And then they, then they proceed to compare it to the United States. And like, surely they don't believe that, do they? I can't believe we're saying what we're saying. It's I, I have to pinch myself for the last six months every day, 10 times a day. But there's another example. They never believe China. Of course, you can't believe China. It's an authoritarian regime. When Belarus did no lockdown and they didn't really get hit with deaths at all, they all said, well, Belarus is an authoritarian regime. Belarus is like, you know, Kentucky compared to China. I mean... Like, and yet they say, oh, Belarus, we can't trust those guys, but we, we will not only trust China, we're going to take them as paragons of epidemic management virtue, and we're going to copy everything they do, and we're going to literally take out and burn our decades of Western pandemic science and guidelines right up to November 2019 was the last guidelines published by the WHO, and it said no quarantine for a pandemic. And they're right, because once the virus is in and about, you expand your hospital capacity and you manage hygiene, you know, some basic distancing, exactly what Sweden did. Sweden actually followed the European guidelines for pandemic management. People think they did something funny. They didn't. We were the ones who did. They followed our Western guidelines up to late 19. China would have benefited from a cross immunity from prior SARS Japan did too. 
they had huge amounts of infection in Japan, but vanishingly low death because their elderly are ultra healthy. They have the lowest obesity in the world and they've crossed immunity to prior coronaviruses like SARS-1 and all. They're, that's what the science would suggest. And we see Vietnam and all these places. The East has very low hits. Japan didn't lock down. Only around 20% of them wear masks. And they were even in Tokyo on the subways and all. The video footage was there, but they just didn't get hit much in mortality. But they did a study in Japan and they followed a group of people through the surge and beyond and they measured for antibodies and they had 4% antibody in the group at the start to SARS-CoV-2 and that group, it went up to 45% of them had antibodies a month or two later and then they all started losing them, which is normal. You don't keep antibodies, you keep T-cell memory and it can flash out antibodies later. You're still immune later, you're still immune, but you don't keep the antibodies. We can't do that for every virus, we'd explode. But the fact is the Japanese caught it, huge amounts, but very few people died because it, what decides the percentage that die or the deaths per million is population metabolic health, particularly metabolic health of the aged, how severe your prior seasons were. If you had severe flu seasons like uh, in the last year or two, you're going to get a low death count because the susceptible have passed. And if you're like Sweden, who had very soft seasons, 2019 and 20 up to March, really low death, you get a big hit. And there's a few other factors, cross immunity in your population. But they're the deciders of your deaths per million. Lockdown does not correlate. We have 12 analyses now, including one in the Lancet. No correlation between lockdown severity and mortality outcome across 50 countries. I mean, this is so obvious. Yeah. That, 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 by the way, they're heroic for publishing such uh, heresy. In the, like, I look at the reaction to the, the Great Barrington Declaration, which if you read it, it's there's nothing radical or, or right wing or libertarian. It's just sort of common sense. This is what this is what we've always done. And somehow that's now and I, I see you've been accused of this like ultra right wing. I don't I don't even know what that means. I get that there's political implications to all this, but um, the idea that that we would focus on protecting our, our weak and vulnerable while also protecting people, people's ability to earn a living doesn't seem so radical to me. No, it's, as you say, it's common sense. And it just happens to be common sense that agrees with all of the prior science before February, March, 2020. So it's important for people to realize, I, I, I'll say it again, the likes of Sweden who just did, hey guys, stay one meter apart in a restaurant and wash your hands and stay at home if you have symptoms and no masks, don't make sense. And, and those guidelines, they were the inherited wisdom of four or five decades of Western science and pandemics. They followed our heritage of wisdom and science. It was everyone else who decided to do something completely bizarre. Uh, you know, it's a very important point that we all decided to do something bizarre. And it's not surprising when you dump all of your scientific learnings up to the point of now and decide to do something the opposite, it's not exactly a shock 
after a few months when you actually analyze the data and find out that that wasn't a good idea. I mean, you know, it would have been amazing if it turned out that lockdowns were really good. It would have overturned everything. You don't overturn 40, 50 years of science. China, I think, China, I think, made a fool of us all. They sent out their videos of guys who are like in their 40s dropping in the street. Uh, they, they, I think in New York Times, they had an article about they had something like 50,000 Twitter accounts screaming about how great the lockdowns were and urging Italy to lock down. So I think basically no conspiracy. I think China had an opportunity here. They could see the West trembling and they said, hey, let's let's send those guys down the plug hole. But I'd, I'd say they couldn't believe how far it went. They must be watching Europe and America. Like you said, how did America do this? The Chinese top guys must be watching and saying, like, it's like it's like they lit a small little firework to annoy their enemy. And the firework just set his whole house on fire and destroyed everything. And I was saying, wow. Uh, and, they're, and they're saying, well, let's do that again. That was cool. Or um, let's keep it going. Let's yeah. do everything we can to keep these idiots destroying themselves. Yeah. Well, let's. That's a great segue to economics, and um, um, I, I, you've you've talked about the, the the COVID data for Sweden, but this is a BBC report that you probably saw, where it compares the second quarter, which they had a Sweden like everybody else had a super rough second quarter because of the imposed lockdown contraction, um, but compared to uh, to the UK. Um, Sweden was 8.6% declined. Uh, the UK was 19 point, a whopping 19.1%. Spain was 18.5%. And, and, and the BBC is pointing out that um, the economic consequences um, also um, overlay with uh, a lower death rate in Sweden compared to the countries that locked down their countries. And I, I pulled up this quote from that we're picking on the World Health Organization. And you notice they, they always call they always blame the pandemic instead of the lockdown, even though they then point to the lockdown as a cause of the economic consequence. But here's, here's what they said. And this was just a couple weeks ago. Tens of millions of people are at risk of falling into extreme poverty, while the number of undernourished people currently estimated at 690 million could increase by up to 132 million by the end of the year. Millions of enterprises face an existential threat. Nearly half of the world's 3.3 billion global workforce are at risk of losing their livelihoods. Informal economy workers are particularly vulnerable because they lack um, social protection and access to quality healthcare and have lost access to productive assets. Without the means to earn an income during lockdowns, many are unable to feed themselves and their families. For most, no income means no food, or at best, less food and less nutritious food. That's the World Health Organization um, very explicitly talking about the economic consequences of lockdowns and what that means for um, excess deaths, starvation, health consequences of not being able to eat or have access to health care. Why are we having such a hard time explaining to people what why what we're doing is so devastatingly wrong for people. Yeah, it's it's weird. And just on the World Health Organization there, uh, 
they are one of the biggest drivers of this disaster. It's kind of rich now that they're cataloging all of what they've done. They've done it. I mean, yeah, yeah, those other organizations have driven it too, and the politicians and the academics in the countries went crazy and Imperial College. But the WHO are singularly the most responsible for driving this madness. And here they are telling us now what they've done. I mean, are they gloating? I don't know. So to your question, though, uh, how do people not get it? There's this incredible cognitive dissonance now that the people have been psychosed. They've been indoctrinated with propaganda since March. In Ireland, around the clock, there are adverts and they went on all summer when nothing was happening. Every 15 minutes, how dangerous COVID was, how dangerous it was. Months and months and months and wearing the masks as the badge, psychological badge that we're living in a terror. All of that has gotten into people's psyches so deeply that now if you try and say, well, hold on a minute, that that's wrong. And there's another way they instinctively resist with a herd kind of a herd mentality. Well, there's no way it was wrong because we're living in a pandemic. And you say, yeah, yeah, but look around you. Do you know anyone who knows anyone who knows anyone who's died, really? And then they get angry. So it's cognitive dissonance now. And it's in the academics. It's in the people. It's everywhere. The real contagion is cognitive dissonance. But it was driven by propaganda and bad actors. It's not like it happened itself. Because you can do an Einstein thought experiment. It's very easy. I just say this to people. No conspiracy. If I went back in a time machine to March and I magically waved a wand and the WHO and the UN and the EU Vaccine Council and I'll pick a bunch of worldwide organizations. I just waved a wand and they were just silent for the next six months. This would have been over in, in May. You know, the hospitals be getting busy again in the winter, but everyone would be saying, well, whew, at least it's not like last April. You know, that was a big one. Be over. So if you remove those forces, uh, you can't have this madness. The, the, the individual countries won't do it to themselves. It's ridiculous. Why would they? The individual countries in the summer in Europe would have dropped all the measures and then went, whew, that was a tough one. Very sad. There's no way to be masking all of their citizens in the middle of the summer for nothing. I mean, that takes tops down organization. I'm a corporate guy. I know stuff, stuff that doesn't make sense, but it has to be done for a policy reason. Takes a lot of coordination and tops down. Right. Yeah. And I, I want to, I want to, I want to get into that. Um, but I, I would just observe that um, at least um, the world health organization believes in herd uh, mentality, if not herd immunity. So uh, that was a, that was a bad joke, but I apologize. Um, <laughs> no, well, they, they, they certainly do. And they know how to engender it for sure. So, so I'm, I'm an, I'm a, I'm an economist with libertarian instincts and, and I'm constantly watching, um, the collusion of big businesses and governments when it comes to public policy. And we've, we've certainly seen that, all over the place in the United States with, uh, with the so-called food pyramid um, that was in large part driven by, and, and you, I'm sure you know something about this, large part driven by um, producers of, of sugary foods and, and that kind of stuff. And in, 
And to me, it was like the, the weaponizing of corporate interests is when they get the government to, to collude with them on that stuff. And I've come up with a phrase that may or may not uh, offend some people. Maybe it's too cheeky, but I'm going to say it anyway. There's, there is a pandemic industrial complex. And yeah. you had, I think I got it from you, but you had shared an article from Der Spiegel, hardly a right-wing conspiracy uh, publication, talking about this entire um, um, network of these these government health organizations, the World Health Organization, the CDC. Um, I can't list them all. There's so many of them. Um, corporate interests, particularly pharmaceutical companies, and um, government officials that that sort of feed off of of panic because in a, in a panic, in a crisis, in a pandemic, you start looking towards government to to solve your problems. And they're describing this, and I, I probably um, not self-aware about about what they were revealing, but they talk about the, uh, it's called uh, Reconstruction of a Mass Hysteria, the Swine Flu Pandemic of 2009. And I think you shared this article, but it basically talks about how this, this massive industry inside and outside of government, NGOs, corporations, uh, politicians, um, preemptively sort of build up, built up the panic over the swine flu. Um, and, and then it turned out to be a dud but in the process of doing all that, it generated a lot of revenue, generates a lot of money to all of these interests. And, and I, I wonder what they would do if there wasn't a pandemic threat. But do you buy that or is that, I mean, uh, I, don't, I don't think this is a conspiracy. Your, your neighbor, um, Adam Smith from Scotland, once talked about the natural tendency of, of, of businessmen to collude to to grow their profits, I don't I don't think that's conspiracy theory. I think it's human nature. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Spiegel uh, newspaper, two thousand and ten, was the article absolutely mainstream. Not a hint of this wing or that wing. Now, interestingly, before I tell the story briefly, Spiegel now in the this year is driving hysteria. So there's a massive change in the media since ten years ago. The media ten years ago asked questions. Largely, that's gone. So Spiegel now is 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 as bad as the Guardian. I mean, it's just shocking. Uh, but back then, it was a real newspaper, and they did a big article. It was around ten pages, and basically, the the simple version is the definition of a pandemic is very important, because when you have, I think, a level six, which is a pandemic, it means that you'll trigger enormous amounts of money to flow to pharmaceutical companies uh, for vaccines. And it'll trigger as well, generally, which what happened back then, that they get indemnity. So they get a ton of money up front to pay for their R&D. They get to keep all the profits and they get indemnity against any uh, side effects or, or damages. That's like the most beautiful business in the world, right? It's not capitalism. It's completely, it's insider trading almost. But anyway, so... The pandemic, it was very important in the old days. The pandemic was something that went across multiple countries, many affected with a new virus or pathogen, and a huge impact to the country's economy and structure and everything. Now, it didn't mean from lockdowns because the guidelines said no lockdowns. It just meant literally people that get so sick that industry would grind to a halt. That was a pandemic. 
But in 2008, 2009, corruption crept in and there were 30 people senior from the pharmaceutical industry flew to Germany, met with the WHO. A lot of pressure was put on to drop the pandemic definition to really it became simply that you got a new pathogen that's in multiple countries and spreading a lot. It dropped out the severity of the impact, which, of course, to you and me is insane because cost benefit. If you have a virus spreading everywhere and people only sneeze, it's nothing. Even if it's spread to 20% of the population and everyone's sneezing, pretty much. And if you have something like Ebola that spreads hugely, it's huge. And there's everything in between. Uh, but they dropped the bar and they removed from their website in 2008, 2009, they removed the references to impact, which is crazy. But that's what pharma wanted. And maybe the WHO wanted it too. maybe for their own importance and for their own objectives. Dropping the bar was good because you'd get pandemics now and then and they'd get to be the guys, extend their funding and influence million drivers for the bad guys. Uh, but that, that was the main thing that happened. So Germany, especially, billions were given to the pharma guys, uh, which they were very happy with. They made a vaccine, uh, rushed it out, and uh, the governments pushed it all over the world, including Ireland. My my five kids got it. Uh, my wife got it. I didn't get it, not because I'm anti-vax. I got lots of vaccines going to China and business. Didn't even ask what they were. don't care. But I just looked at it in swine flu, and I said, this is ridiculous. It's a flu. So uh, they gave the vaccine and now there's hundreds and hundreds of cases in Ireland. The recent ones, I think, given four, six million dollars each young people narcolepsy. So neurological damage causing sleep defects. And, uh, you know, that's what happens like when when you have the collusion between business and WHO and all these other ones, they're not democratic organizations. That's another key distinction. Sovereign governments are democratically elected and they have health departments that make decisions on mass medication. And it might get corrupt, but, well, at least it's the guys you voted for and their guys. It's not too bad. WHO is not elected. It's essentially a private company. A lot of, most of these are private companies. They're dealing with pharma, which are private companies. So between them all, this bunch have worldwide reach, enormous influence, and they're essentially private companies. And we handle them the keys to everything. So it's not that surprising that everything appears insane. Because we know in the banking crisis, the guys went so mad that they actually ruined their own businesses. Like, you know, I guess in economics, uh, the drive for profit and greed can often make people do irrational stuff that will actually destroy their own businesses. So these guys, uh, they literally, they've gone off the leash, I think. And they can't stop themselves. <laughs> yeah, like you like you said, there's it's very difficult to imagine an exit strategy. Um, we had an instance where the I believe it was a mayor of Nashville, Tennessee, um, the local health department had run data that, uh, unfortunately for them, showed that gathering in bars had no increase in the spread of COVID. And this little conspiracy in this little local government was they suppressed that data because the mayor of Nashville did not want the people of Nashville to know that they've been not allowed to go to bars for all these months um, because of some some political mandate that made no damn sense at all. So you have you have this whole system is locked into place and and the exit strategy. I mean, the 
I think it was the, the governor of California said, um, I'm not going to stop doing all of these measures until we have zero deaths. And of course, there is no world where um, people don't die of, of dangerous viruses or all sorts of other things. So that, that means we, they're, they're, they have no way to out of this thing. And, and even if you set a, a, a reasonable level of deaths, it's still a problem because the lockdowns don't work. So he's perpetrating a falsehood and then he's then applying an, a ridiculous cr- criteria to when you stop doing something stupid. So it's just doubly insane. And, and this is what we're dealing with. I mean, the governor, DeSantis in Florida, he had Professor uh, Levitt and the Harvard guy and Stanford in their um, their parliament or Senate or whatever they have, you know, officially. State legislature. State legislature, yeah. And they had big screens and they had the guys there and they spent two hours going through the data. And DeSantis, I think, worked this out a long time back. But he had one big meeting with the top people, probably covered them, and they agreed that the lockdowns in Florida, they were at, man, maybe they're at four deaths per million uh, people per day, which is not actually that high because a lot of them are with SARS-CoV-2 PCR. They're not from COVID. But let's say they're around four. And DeSantis the next day said all mask mandates are finished and all lockdown measures are gone. Just follow, just follow the guidelines we had for like 20, 30 years, right? And they did. And you know what happened? Everyone was saying in the media, oh, my God, the deaths, the cases. And I said at the time, nothing's going to happen, guys. We know nothing's going to happen from the science. What happened? I, on one of my slides, roll back the white sheet. And you see that the deaths just keep going down on their down trajectory for six weeks. Remember two more weeks? Oh, you had a big party? Well, just wait two weeks. Six weeks, all the way down. Didn't even shift. Cases pretty much the same. So there's a million examples, not a million. There's a hundred examples of what I just said. All across Europe, they take down the lockdowns. The curve doesn't change a bit. You bring in a lockdown, the curve doesn't change at all. It's it's sad. I give one quick example that's local because I'm doing Irish in UK at the moment. I mentioned the UK, the only excess death now is younger people and their deaths at home. So we know they're not COVID, they're, they're blood on lockdown hands. But in Ireland, on October the 16th, the curve, the R curve started coming down. And that can be seasonal or they, it could be some factors, but it starts coming down. On the 22nd, in a frenzy, they implement a full country lockdown, level five. Even the stores have some areas in the store in essential items shut off. A full a full bore lockdown. And I'm there. Oh my God. So 16th, the curve starts falling. 24 or 22nd, they put in a lockdown for no reason, obviously. Uh, the curve keeps going, nothing happens. Now a lockdown put in the 22nd, it'll take a week or two at least before you affect anything because of the lag time. The curve keeps falling. And when the lockdown could be expected around now to begin to have effect the curve levels off and stops falling. The lockdown mathematically, with zero doubt, did nothing. We know that. But to your point earlier, how can people with something as simple as that not just go, oh my God, they can't, cognitive dissonance. No, 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 we'll see it in a week or two. 
No, it would have gone up, but it was going down. It kept going down. It leveled. No, it would have gone up. We know we need lockdowns. It's a pandemic. No, no, it was an epidemic uh, last March, and now it's a seasonal endemic virus, and the hospitals are not under pressure, and people aren't really dying. No, 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 that's not what I see in the media. It's 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 more tragic than frustrating, but uh, hopefully we've done a little bit of good today. And I want to. You mentioned that that you're working on a movie, but I definitely I want to hear about that just quickly and where people can get access to the work that you're doing because I think you're you're just a great explainer, looking at complex data sets, sets telling showing us a little bit of how to sort of work through this. Yeah, no, well, thanks, Matt. Uh, if you if you search engine, I won't say the other word because they've been causing trouble. If you search engine Ivor Cummins, uh, my name, on the front page, you get my YouTube and website and Twitter. I'm pretty big on Twitter and I share a lot of science as well there. But the YouTube mainly, if you scroll down through my videos, a lot of them in the last few months are COVID and the description, the title kind of describes and one of them's 1.6 million views, September 8th, crucial update. And that one had a lot of impact and it's a 30 minute that covers a lot. Uh, so YouTube's probably the big thing. And I have a Patreon and PayPal now. So that's that's the way I support my family and five kids because I'm just completely independent now. Um, but yeah, it's... Uh, I love the science. I've lived my whole life upholding technical truth. It's been my core, my whole life, my career. And and this offends me since April. Deep, deeply offends me beyond money or beyond other. It's just so offensive to me, like it might be for you as an economist to see the economy destroyed with a ridiculous cost benefit. And the other driver is five children. I've always been focused on the next generation, the health of our society. I fought for eight years to save people from heart attacks. And we know how we can do it. Driven me crazy. And now I have to look at this, you know, and their future. To see the kids, Matt, little kids going around with masks that are doing nothing of any note. We are masking our children based on someone deciding. It's, no, I'm fighting this till the end. Well, thank you for that. I'll 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 join you in that fight, and hopefully this ends soon. But if not, I would love to have you back, and we'll give it a second go. And next time, we'll convince everybody else. <laughs> we'll mop up the residuals. Yes. Thanks a lot, Matt. Thank you. Thanks for watching Kibbe on Liberty. By now, you know this is the most important event of your week. So make sure you subscribe on YouTube. Click the little bell so you get notifications. Kibbe on Liberty, mostly honest conversations with mostly interesting people.